Well, we are continuing tonight in our study of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 11. And so I encourage you to find 1 Corinthians 11 in your Bible. And uh, we're going to read tonight verse 2 down to verse 16, 2 through 16. So after you've found that, stand with me. Let's read it together. Verse 2, now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while prophesying, uh, while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the, for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Now, anyone want to volunteer to come and teach that, uh, this passage? <laughs> Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we, uh, we thank you that your word includes every aspect of life. And, uh, Lord, we see reflected in this passage of Scripture your created order, your purpose, your design. So, Lord, we want to do things your way. Uh, Lord, we want to be people of your word. We want to uh, line up with what your word teaches in every respect. And even when uh, it goes against what is now in our day political correctness, uh, Lord, we, we still want to follow you. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight as we walk through this passage that we can rightly understand it, that we can understand what it doesn't mean and what it does mean. And, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts tonight, our minds, and, Lord, then most of all, that we would be committed to do uh, your will. So, Lord, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the rich um, joy that it brings to our lives, the uh, wonderful instruction and uh, direction that it brings to us. 
So, Lord, we thank you tonight for this uh, opportunity to worship you and to be in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, the issue of the role of women in the church and in society has become a battleground in modern times. And although it has always been somewhat of a battleground in the world, it has now become a real point of contention in the church as well. That has been the case for about the last 60 years or so. And as with many movements, the women's liberation movement started in American society and has moved into the church. As a result, some Christian leaders have attempted to alter or redefine biblical standards in regard to women and women's roles in society, in the home, and in the church. And although there have been numerous attempts at egalitarian interpretations of Scripture, really the only way to reinterpret Scripture to line up with today's standards is either to say that Paul and Peter gave their own opinions or to depart from a historical grammatical method of interpreting Scripture. I believe that Satan is feverishly trying to upset the divine order any way he can in an effort to destroy the home and the church by perverting proper biblical male-female roles and relationships. We have come to a passage of Scripture in our study of 1 Corinthians that deals with the issue of women's roles. And I've taught on this before, so you probably will not be surprised about what I will say. But my commitment is to give what God says about this rather than the opinions of men. So let's dive in here. Look with me at verse 2. Here, Paul begins by saying, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Once again, Paul praises them before beginning to correct them. He is pleased that they are seeking God's will on this matter and that they love and respect him and that they are basically holding to sound doctrine. Now, does the last part of that surprise you? It shouldn't. You see, their problem was not really doctrine. Their problem was practice. And this should be a reminder to us that it is possible to have every theological I dotted and T crossed and still be out of the will of God by failing to practice that which we know to be God's will as revealed in his word. The word traditions there in verse 2 is not a negative term. Sometimes we uh, talk about traditions in a negative light. But this word means that which was passed along by teaching. And it is used in both a negative and a positive way in Scripture. But here it refers to divinely revealed teaching that has been passed down orally from one person to another. That is 
the primary way Christian teaching was originally passed from one generation to another until it was finally written down. Well, Paul gives five principles in regard to this issue of women's roles in this passage. The principles are based on a specific custom that was prominent in that part of the world in that day. But these principles apply for all time in the church. And we'll see this as we go along. Notice, first of all, the affirmation. The affirmation. Look at verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, when Paul says, I want you to understand, he's introducing something that he has not yet taught them. This is something new. The principle that Paul is giving in this verse is that there is a need for authority for the sake of order and to eliminate confusion. This principle is important in society as well as in the home and in the church. The first thing he says about this principle is the head of man is Christ. The head of man is Christ. The word for head there means the sovereign or ruling part of the body. Whether it is on a human or divine scale, subordination and authority are indispensable elements in God's order and plan. If Christ had not submitted to the will of God the Father, redemption for mankind would have been impossible and we would be forever doomed to hell. If individual human beings do not submit to Christ as Lord and Savior, they are still doomed to hell because they have rejected God's plan of salvation. And if women do not submit to men in the proper biblical order, then the family and the church and society as a whole are also disrupted, and there is a departure from God's desired order and purpose. Now, we have little trouble with those first two statements, but it's the third one where the problem comes. And yet the Bible is very clear. In God's divine authority, Christ is the head of every man lost or saved. The Bible tells us one day, those who are lost, even those who hate Christ, will bow their knee and acknowledge Him as Lord. Those who accept His authority are in the church. Those who reject His authority are in the world. But He is the head of them all. So Christ is the head of every man. The second statement that Paul makes in verse 3 is the head of woman is man. Here's where many have a problem. Christian feminists today appeal to such passages as Galatians 3.28 that says there is neither male nor female. And 1 Peter 3.7 that says, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the 
grace of life to disprove the idea that husbands have authority over their wives and that wives should be submissive to their husbands. But it is impossible, honestly, to interpret what Paul says here as being supportive of contemporary feminism in any way. And we know that Paul is often accused of being a male chauvinist. But really, in Paul's day, we would have to say that the exact opposite was true. Women in that Greek culture lived in the background and were often treated like property, like cattle. Often, women were only used for prostitution. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ gave them dignity and honor that they never had, even though it was abused at times. And Paul makes no distinction between men and women as far as personal worth, abilities, intellect, or spirituality are concerned. But as human beings and as Christians, women in general are completely equal to men spiritually. Some women are even superior to some men in regard to abilities, intellect, maturity, and spirituality. But that's not the issue here. The issue is that of roles. And the clear teaching of Scripture is that God established the principle of male authority and female subordination for the purpose of order and complementation, not on the basis of any innate superiority of males. For example, a certain employee may be more intelligent and more skilled than his boss, but a company cannot be run without submission to proper authority, even if some of those in authority are not as capable as they ought to be. There has to be authority and submission. The issue here is not capabilities or superiority, but rather God's design for society and the roles that he has assigned to men and women. A church may have some women who are better Bible students, better theologians, and better speakers than any of the men, including the pastor. But if those women obedient to God's order, they will submit to male leadership and will not try to usurp it simply because that is God's design. A wife may be better educated, better taught in Scripture, and more spiritually mature than her husband. But because she is spiritual, she will be willing to submit to him as the head of the home. Well, thirdly, he makes another statement. The head of Christ is God. Even in the Godhead, there's authority and submission. And Paul inseparably ties these three aspects of the principle together. As Christ is submissive to the Father, and as Christians are submissive to Christ, so women are to be submissive. Men. You cannot reject one part without rejecting the other. 
You can't pick the part you like. It stands and falls together. Now, I should probably remind you of something that I think you already know. And that is that this submission must be based on love rather than tyranny. And we understand because uh, we understand what the Bible has to say about Christian love, that all of these relationships are to be driven by love. And this submission is to be a loving submission, and the leading is to be loving leadership. So we see the affirmation here that Paul gives. Verse 3 spells out the basic principle of authority and submission. But then Paul gives us the application. The application. In verses 4 through 6, he tells us what this looks like in a real-life situation. The context here is best understood as referring to activities of believers in ministry before the Lord and in public where a clear testimony is essential. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. This is a reference to a local Corinthian custom. The context here implies that in Corinth, such a head covering would have been completely ridiculous for a man and completely proper for a woman. The head covering in that day, in that culture, was a symbol of submission. In Corinthian society, a man's praying or prophesying without a head covering was a sign of his authority over women who were expected to have their heads covered in these ministries. On the other hand, it would be considered a disgrace in that culture for a man to have his head covered because it communicated a reversal of the proper roles. But apparently, there were at least some women in the Corinthian church who were not covering their heads when praying or prophesying. And we know from secular history that there were various women's liberation movements, and there was certainly active feminism in the Roman Empire of that day. Much as in our day, some women were demanding to be treated exactly as men, and they attacked marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions on their rights. Some asserted their independence by leaving their husbands and homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity. Nothing's really changed that much, has it? 
This was going on back then. And by the way, there are a couple of little side issues that we probably ought to address here as well. The mention here of women praying and prophesying is sometimes used to try to prove that women should be involved in ministry. And some say that Paul was admitting this, that women had the right to teach, preach, and lead in church worship. So they take this as kind of a proof text. There are two problems with this. First of all, Paul makes it clear elsewhere, such as in 1 Timothy 2.12, that he did not allow women to teach or to exercise authority over men in that public context of worship, but that they were to remain quiet, Paul said. Secondly, Paul makes no mention at all here in 1 Corinthians 11 that this praying and prophesying was done in the context of the assembled church for the formal time of teaching. This is likely in the context of one-on-one witnessing. And the New Testament has no restrictions whatsoever for women doing that. Women are not even prohibited from witnessing to men. Nor does the Bible prohibit women from taking non-leadership roles of praying with other believers. And there is no restriction from teaching and or preaching to other women or to children. Women may have the gift of prophecy, as did Philip's four daughters in Acts 21, verse 9, but they are not to prophesy in the meeting of the assembled church where men are present. Generally, the role of leading in prayer and teaching slash preaching is to be that of men in the assembly of the church. Now, there's another side issue that sometimes comes up, And that is the idea that since this was merely a local custom in Corinth, that it doesn't apply anywhere else but here. Certainly, there are times when this insistence on following a local custom would not apply to all Christians of all times. For example, some people said, that because John Calvin wore a hat when he went to church, that all Christian men should wear hats. But John Calvin wore a hat for two reasons. First of all, because the church building was drafty, and secondly, because it had pigeons. So you can't build a rule based on something like that. But in this case, here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is going to make it clear that this is something that applies universally to the church for all time. And we'll see that more clearly as we move on through this text. Now, as with meat that had been offered to idols, there was nothing inherently wrong with wearing or not wearing a head covering. The issue is the rebellion against 
the God-ordained roles for men and women. In Corinth, that rebellion for women was seen in refusing to wear a head covering while praying or prophesying. Usually, dress is largely cultural, and unless there is a problem with immodesty, it has no spiritual or moral significance at all. But there are always to be some clear distinctions between the way men dress and the way women dress. And the issue here was that some Christian women in Corinth were wanting to look like the men, and in the process, they were communicating rebellion against their God-ordained roles. The universal principle is women's subordination to men by God's design and not the particular mark or symbol by which rebellion against it may be communicated. So Paul is not laying down a universal principle here that all Christian women in all churches of all times should have a head covering. That's not what he's saying. That's not the point. The point is that all Christian women in all churches of all times are to demonstrate in whatever way is culturally relevant to them their willingness to follow God's order in regard to authority and submission in the church. And Paul's point in verses 4 and 5 is that whenever it is appropriate for men and women to pray or to prophesy, they should do so with proper distinctions as male and female. Every man should speak to or for the Lord clearly as a man. And every woman should speak to or for the Lord clearly as a woman. God does not want the distinctions between men and women to be blurred. We'll look at verse 6. For a woman, for if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. <clears throat> if a woman took off her head covering, she might as well make the symbol of her role rejection complete by shaving off all her hair. That's what Paul's saying here. But long hair is the God-given identifier of her special role as a woman. In that day, the only women who would shave their heads would be prostitutes or a woman who was an extreme feminist. The Vestal Virgins in the temple of Aphrodite there in Corinth had shaved heads. These were temple prostitutes. And one other classification of women would shave their heads, and that is those who were guilty of adultery. Their heads would be shaved as a symbol of shame and guilt. So what Paul is doing here is 
to say that the sin of rebellion against God's order for the home and the church is similar to the sin of adultery. Verse 5 says, that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Thirdly, Paul gives us the argument. The argument. Everybody having fun so far? The argument, verse 7. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Now, as I've already mentioned, having your head covered was a custom in ancient Corinth that symbolized subordination. This was the case in much of the ancient world in that day, and still is the case in parts of the Middle East today. It was a custom for a certain time and place, and it is not to be taken as something normative for Christians. However, the principle of male headship is not a matter of custom. It is a matter of God's order and creation and should not be compromised. This is similar to what we have in passages like 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10, and 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Those passages are not saying that women should not wear jewelry or makeup. That is, unless the wearing of jewelry or makeup is seen in your culture as being rebellious against the God-given roles for men and women. That principle must be maintained that the is the the authority and submission that God assigned to men and women, but not the cultural trappings such as wearing jewelry or makeup or head coverings. It is important for us to see here that Paul appeals to the created order to show that the principle of authority and submission is a universal principle and not just a cultural custom that was limited to one time in one place. This principle is for all times and all places and is still applicable today. Notice that Paul says in verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. You say, Pastor, are you saying that the Bible uh, teaches that it was only man who was created in the image of God? No, not at all. Not at all. Both men and women are created in the image of God. But as Paul is going to point out in verse 8, the original creation from the dust of the ground was of Adam only. That's Genesis 2-7. Eve was created later from a part of Adam, and by that fact, in a unique way, was man was the glory of God, and the woman was the glory of man. That's what Paul's saying. And God chose to have it that way. And the struggle of authority and submission began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And you may remember this. In Genesis 3.16, it says, Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule 
over you. This was the beginning of both the women's liberation movement and the male chauvinist movement. And notice the last phrase of verse 7. But the woman is the glory of man. Here's the contrast. The whole point is that man shows how magnificent a creature God can create from himself, while woman shows how magnificent a creature God can make from a man. But as far as saving and sanctifying grace is concerned, the woman is equal with the man. She is made equally in the image of God in that sense. She enters as deeply into communion with God as the man does. She is equally restored from the fall through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the point of glorification, she will be just like Christ in the same way the man will be. She is not directly the glory of God in the same way the man is, but is the glory of man and therefore the indirect outshining of the glory of God. And as such, her role in the world is to submit to the direction of the man who is given the divine dominion by God. The woman is not inferior to man intellectually, morally, spiritually, or functionally, but she is unique from him. And her God-given role is to come under his protection, leadership, and care. Well, let's move to verse 8. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, I need to comment on verse 10. You say, what is this all about? Well, the basic meaning of the Greek word translated angels there is messengers. But I believe that the context implies that this is a reference to God's holy angels. And the point he is making, I believe, is that the primary characteristic of the holy angels is that of total and immediate obedience and submission to God. In contrast to that, the angels who fell with Satan were cast out of heaven because they sought to use their power to rebel against God. So Paul is using the angels here, I believe, as an analogy of what godly women will do in contrast to those who are rebellious against the plans and purposes of God. Well, notice, fourthly, the accord the accord. Look with me at verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Men and women need each other. Men and women are complementary in every way, but particularly in the Lord's work. They are to function together as a divine team. From the earliest history of God's people, women have had vital roles in His work and ministry. And many of God's greatest workers have been women. In many times and places, 
faithful women have kept the church alive with little or no support from men. A church without godly women cannot be strong and effective as a church. But a church is even stronger when there are also godly men at the helm. And the point is that neither men nor women are independent of the other. They are mutually dependent. God created both men and women, and even though the first woman came from the man, every future man has been born of a woman. And yet, the most important thing to note is that both come from God. He created both men and women for his glorious purpose. And the wise and gracious harmony and balance is that each have different roles in God's design, but each are completely equal in value, nature, personhood, and dependence. Well, there's one last thing that we see in this passage, and that is the answer. The answer. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. The principle of authority and submission is not only given by God in His divine revelation, but it is also self-evident from creation as well. The cultural practice of a woman's covering her head as a symbol of subordination to men is a reflection of the natural order in creation. You say, what do you, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, we all know that Men and women have distinct physiologies in many ways. One of those distinctions is in the process of hair growth on the head. If you do some study on this, you will find that hair develops in three stages. Number one is formation and growth. The second stage is resting. And the third stage is is fallout. And I see some of you have gotten there. But get this. The male hormone, testosterone, speeds up the cycle so men reach the third stage earlier than women generally. And and I'm saying generally because everybody always throws an exception at me. But on the other hand... The female hormone estrogen causes the cycle to remain in stage one for a longer time, causing women's hair to grow longer than men's generally. That's why you rarely see a woman that has gone bald. But you see a lot of men who have. Very few women ever reach the third stage of hair development. And this is true in every culture and in every location on earth. 
a universal principle. This is why it is natural for women to have longer hair than men. Now, the word nature in verse 14 carries with it the idea of instinct or an innate sense of what is normal and right. Long, beautiful hair is a glory to a woman. This is God's special gift to show the softness and tenderness of femininity. The Greek word for long hair there can mean either hair that is long or a neat hairdo. So it can refer to the beauty of the woman's hair. So this is a glory to her. So let's summarize quickly. In modern cultures where the wearing of a hat or veil does not symbolize subordination, that practice should not be required of Christian women. We shouldn't say, we shouldn't set a rule and legalistically say, you know, women have to have their head covered. That's not Paul's point. But women's hair and women's dress is to be distinctly feminine and demonstrate her womanly loveliness. There should be no blurring of the sexes. There should be no confusion about male and female identities because God has made the sexes distinct. Physiologically, He has made the sexes distinct, but also in roles and relationships. God wants men to be masculine. God wants women to be feminine. Well, what is Paul's final conclusion in verse 16? But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Just as it has been in nearly every age and in every church, there were apparently some... Corinthian women, Christian women in Corinth, who were not satisfied with God's design. And just as in our day and time, there were some who wanted to disregard or modify this teaching to suit themselves. So Paul says, in effect, if you are going to insist on having your own way, then what else can I say to you? You'll just have to answer to God because I have given you His Word on this subject. And of course, ultimately, every person will answer to God for what we do with His Word. The question for us is, will we do things God's way? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this evening that You would help us to understand these principles And, uh, Lord, even though these are things that go contrary to our culture, contrary to our times, uh, these are principles that you have given, universal principles that you intend for the life of the church, not just in ancient days, but in our day as well. So, Lord, help us to follow your principles. Help us to live by them and honor you through them. And we ask this in Christ's name.
Amen.